0: Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. 15. On today's
1: Fantasy Baseball I'm 15, we'll assess the impact of the game of musical chairs in the Reds' infield. up taxes. Dodger's been a Dodger.
2: <laughs> I have That's... not had uh, three go throughs yet. It
1: works great in a fantasy three. I'm just glad
2: I am not at the dentist.
1: Fantasy Baseball in
2: 15 on the Athletic.
1: Welcome to Fantasy Baseball in 15 for Wednesday, March 17th. I'm Al Melkier, and with me here for this episode is Derek Van Riper and DVR. Lots of red stuff to talk about. Of course, injury news, because it is spring training. And that's just perennially what we do talk about. And um, also uh, talk a little bit about how we use projections in our draft prep. Uh, Talk about that a little bit as well. But uh, let's start with the reds here. So... Uh, we are coming to you, uh, recording this just before the Reds are going to play the Rockies. Uh, but Eugenio Suarez is expected to play shortstops so when you're listening to this. He's probably already logged in that game at shortstop. So what do you think about this? Is this something you think that is really worth paying attention to? And, you know, if so, how do you gauge the fallout from all of this?
2: I think it is worth paying attention to because the Reds have done such a terrible job of addressing their need at shortstop. They don't have a great bridge to Jose Garcia, and I say that in the most kind way I could possibly say that, knowing that Kyle Farmer is a human being with feelings who wants that job. I, I think they have to be creative here. I don't know if they, I don't know if they have a better option than Suarez. They're going to be miserable on. The defensive side if that happens it's been several years since he's played the position but even if we don't get 20 plus games from Suarez just enough to qualify him in our leagues for 2021 would be pretty interesting to add that positional flexibility I like him regardless of whether or not this becomes a thing in the regular season a low average big power skill set he's one of many Cincinnati hitters that I think is due for a bounce back here in 2021.
1: Yeah, I, yeah, I think he actually should bounce back in the batting average department and not be a liability there. And it is interesting because I think just having that additional flexibility, as you said, is something that boosts his value, maybe just marginally, but there's a part of me that just reflexively says, ah, shortstop, what a boon. But you know, these days, I mean, shortstop is arguably the deepest position. So I don't know that it really helps him that much.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I think. Compared to 10 years ago, especially, it's less impactful if this happens than it would have been in the past. But we'll always take that added flexibility, especially when it's across parts of the diamond, when it's corner and middle, right? First and third is nice, but uh, third and short or, or third and second is even better because then you get corner and middle as opposed to two corner spots.
1: Yeah, no, that definitely does help somewhat. And the, the other part of this Is now what happens at second base because, uh, Mike Moustakis is part of this whole shift would possibly go from second base to third base. And so basically you've just moved that shortstop competition, uh, you know, over to the right a little bit. But, uh, one name that's come up that I think that does make this more than, than just simply a game of musical chairs is that, uh, India, uh, is now part of that second base mix. So does this, is that maybe the, the most impactful part of this whole scenario uh, from a fantasy perspective.
2: I think it would be maybe because we're talking about someone who was not on the deep mixed league radar at all, who I think will be if he has a spot to call his own. Uh, We could probably have a whole episode about Jonathan India himself and whether or not he's a disappointment or whether or not there's still another level of power to come. I know he's dealt with some injuries, as a minor leaguer with the Reds. So that's probably limited some of the production thus far. And if you look back level to level, you know, 125 WRC plus at high A, a 138 WRC plus in limited time at double A. He's a little old for the level uh, now because he went to college, of course. But I I look at him and, and think maybe there's actually a pretty useful big league player there, even if he's not the kind of guy that's ever going to live up to being the fifth overall pick in that 2018 draft.
1: Yeah, well, uh, you know, this spring still, there's a little bit left uh, of it, and it'll have something to say, I suppose, about his trajectory for uh, 2021. And also just one more note from that Reds-Rockies game that Wade Miley, again, we're talking before the game actually was played, but he was scheduled to take the mound again. So just a, a very short blip on the radar in terms of uh, his injury situation. So good news there for Wade Miley. Uh, unfortunately, less good news for Nate Pearson. He's had a setback with his groin injury. Looks almost certain that he's not going to be ready for opening day. Although, to be fair, we do not have a timetable yet for Nate Pearson. But there have been reports already of Ross Stripling having the upper hand and taking that rotation spot. So let's talk about both Pearson and Stripling. With this setback, is that enough to discourage you from maybe considering Pearson in your upcoming 12-teamer drafts?
2: If I don't have IL spots, I think it would be. I think in a league where I have IL spots, I'd at least consider a very late pick with Pearson, stash him away, and then kind of see what happens once he recovers from this injury. Fortunately, it's not a shoulder. It's not an elbow. I think Ross Stripling's pretty interesting, though. I did not pitch well in the shortened season, but if he's the true fifth starter— he would go on the road to face the Rangers for his first start on April 7th at Texas. is a really soft landing spot. It's not a good lineup. We saw the first year of the new park in Arlington. It was very pitcher-friendly. So I would absolutely trust Stripling there, and I would think about him as an endgame pick even in a 12-team league because even if he's a pitch-and-ditch sort of guy, you'd rather draft that player than spend fab on him prior to that week. So. I do like Stripling, at least for that matchup, if that schedule held up. He'd have a two-start week the week after against the Yankees and Royals. Maybe a little tougher because of the first one, but at least he catches the Yankees outside of Yankee Stadium. So it's probably a thumbs-up for me on Stripling for the first two weeks that he's in the mix for the Jays, because I believe in the track record there. are talking about a guy that had a three-year run with a sub-four ERA and a good whip. Uh, it's mostly based on that curveball being really good. It's not about velocity as much. With Ross Stripling, so might be a guy that you can use for a bit in April, even if he's not on your roster all season long in more shallow formats.
1: All right, and in uh, some more injury news, but of the better kind. Uh Jared Kelnick looks like he could be back possibly as soon as Wednesday the day you might actually be listening to this podcast uh, it could be Jared Kelnick day uh for the Mariners uh, of course he's been out with a grade 2 adductor strain in his left knee but if it's not Wednesday could be sometime this week still so very good news there uh are you still concerned though you know given that we haven't seen him back in the Mariners lineup yet or that you know this is something that could reemerge get aggravated linger do you have concerns about Jared Kelnick at this point
2: I'm a little concerned that it's a grade two injury that they're pushing him back this quickly. I mean, I want Jared Kelnick to be in the big leagues as much as anybody other than maybe Jared Kelnick himself. And I think you don't want to jeopardize long-term health coming back too quickly to try and force your way into the roster when you know that the team's not going to put you on the opening day roster. It doesn't matter. Jared Kelnick could homer in every remaining Cactus League game, and the Mariners still probably won't change their plans for him. It's going to be a mid-April call-up as opposed to an opening day opportunity for him. So believing that or being the cynic to believe that, I guess I just want him to be completely healthy. And it just feels like they're pushing him back a little bit faster than they need to from this injury.
1: So I I can certainly relate to that sentiment. uh, But with upcoming drafts, how differently would you treat him given, given those concerns that you have?
2: Not going to treat him too differently. Fortunately, I I think if there is any sort of setback, they'll be quick to go ahead and let him rest. Being a younger player, maybe he can beat the timetable and everything ends up being fine. But the plan all along for me, if I'm drafting Kelnick, it's that I'm putting someone else in my lineup for the first few lineup periods anyway. So I'm building a roster. I've got a little more outfield depth. You know, leaning on an older, boring player, maybe on the bench initially, and then flipping the switch once Kelnick gets the call. So, really, not much of a, a tactical adjustment, but me just saying, hey, I, I just wanted to be completely healthy when he does get that opportunity so he can hold that spot down for good.
1: All right. Well, let's uh, pivot to another aspect here of draft day and uh, draft prep. So uh, I just recently wrote a column that is now live on The Athletic about eight players who are polarizing the projection systems. And, you know, part of this is just informed by my own draft prep DVR because once upon a time I did my own projections, but for the last few years I haven't. So I rely on the the people who do really great work, uh, you know, like Ariel Cohen and uh, Derek Cardy, Um so uh, you know, there's the steamer projections. Of course, those have been around for a long time. Zips, and uh, you know, generally they they have a pretty strong consensus. So if you look at three or four projection systems, and you see that they're all basically projecting the same type of roto value for a player, you know, maybe within a couple of dollars of each other. I mean, that's you know, that's. Pretty good in terms of my confidence for, uh, wh- how to value those players, but occasionally they do disagree and they disagree by a lot. And so the players that I featured in this column, uh, from the most optimistic to the most pessimistic, you know, often there's a span there of maybe $8 or so, $8 or $9. And that's obviously significant. So with that preface, uh, being laid out there, DVR, what sort of, um, role do projection systems play in your own draft prep?
2: I build rankings before any of the projection systems are publicly available. So I sort of use those systems as an error check against my own biases. I try to remove my own blind spots, seeing what the projections turn out. But I also try to understand where a projection is most likely to lead us astray. So for me, it's a bit of an insurance policy and probably a good glimpse into the minds of everybody else at the draft table. I think people treat projections as gospel. I think they're a great tool. And I think everybody you mentioned does a really good job with them. Um, But I'm trying to break them and find flaws in them and, and leverage those flaws and leverage those differences to my benefit. I feel like that's the most effective way that I can use them in a particular draft or in a particular auction. But I really like the idea of this piece because we were just looking at Christian Walker on Under the Radar on Tuesday and he's one of those guys that has almost identical projections across all systems, which is kind of the opposite of what you wrote about. Uh, but I, I think when you when you see discrepancies among systems, at least when I see them, I dig in deeper. I try to figure out what it might be in a unique system that causes it to generate that different output. So uh, I know with the Bat-X, Derek Hardy factors in a lot of stat cast data that isn't necessarily being accounted for in other projection systems. So a guy like uh, CJ Crone or Mitch Garver, who were both in the piece, those guys hit the ball really hard. So I would imagine that if the bat X is more optimistic about players like those two guys, that's probably a big part of the reason why. So that I can step back and say, well, how much do I believe that that matters? in in that particular case, I believe that matters quite a bit. I think that could be the kind of thing that Older projections models were previously missing, and I do want to account for that. So it, it kind of varies from discrepancy to discrepancy, but a lot of this for me is still a learning experience of trying to figure out what all goes into the projection, what doesn't, and you know why are things turning out the way they are.
1: Yeah, and once you become more familiar with these systems, you know, like you were saying about Derek Cardi's system of uh, the bat and the bat X, uh, well, the bat X specifically that built-in stack cast. Uh, and, you know, I've also noticed with ATC, which is, which are Ariel Cohen's projections that sometimes he's a little bit more responsive to Babip trends than just kind of assuming that there's always going to be a regression back to a, a normal Babip. So each one has its own, you know, strengths and I suppose weaknesses, you know, or, you know, things that, uh, you know, maybe it doesn't pick up on as much as, as one of the other ones. But um, yeah, each one gives you, uh in some cases, a really different picture. And sometimes that difference is based on playing time. And a, a few of the players that I featured in my piece, uh the, really the skills assessments were pretty similar. But for whatever reason, one system may have been more optimistic about a player getting more playing time. Oftentimes that coincided with them being more optimistic uh you know about maybe the team context or something. So, uh it's interesting to to look at and I, I do hope that you uh you check out the piece. Uh I just want to uh, touch on one more aspect of that piece which is uh one player in particular really stood out as being particularly po- polarizing and that's CJ Crone. So, where do you fall on the spectrum of expectations with him? Uh, do you see him as sort of a uh a borderline replacement level type of player for a 12 team league or do you think that with the move to Colorado that he's really much more than that?
2: I think he's a little more than that with the move to Colorado, but I do think CJ Crone walks the fine line between uh, getting DFA'd in May and hitting 30 home runs by keeping a job all season. Uh, So if you get him around pick 200 in Colorado, especially he's worth the risk at that price. Had he landed in almost any other situation, I would probably ignore him at that price.
1: Makes sense. And I'm sure that's a sentiment uh, shared by a lot of people drafting about right now. So uh, again, hope you do check out the piece. Uh, but that's going to be all for this episode of Fantasy Baseball in 15. If you're enjoying this podcast on a platform that allows you to leave a rating and a review, we do appreciate it when you take the time to do that. And before we sign off here, just be sure to check out Ding You presented by BetMGM. It's our March Madness show. Listen in on the Daily Ding podcast feed or watch the live stream on YouTube at 1 p.m. Eastern on Wednesday. So with that said, for Derek Van Riper, I'm Al Melkier, and we will return here on Thursday.